is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of July 17th, 2023. It is our penultimate week of Jeopardy for the season. And who knows when? Jeopardy will be back because, you know, the writer's strike is ongoing and, you know, good for them. Get that sorted yeah. out. We'll we'll miss Jeopardy, but there are more important things in the world. And, you know, we'll figure out if the strike is long, we'll figure out what our plans are as that continues. And yeah, but before we start talking about t- this week's this week's episodes, how are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing OK. My believe I mentioned that I am home alone mm-hmm. last week and it's been very productive. It's been very quiet. Mm-hmm. And yeah, now just getting ready for them to come home and move into, I know this is going to be weird for you, but move into the school year because my older daughter starts first grade in a little over two weeks. What? Yeah. That's wild. Yes. Our district also starts a week earlier than everyone else around us anyway. Mm. But I think Tuesday, August 8th is first day. That so, is bonkers to it me. It is early. Because <laughs> we just finished your yep. moments. I mean, you know, at this point, at this point, I think we've been out of school for what, like four, four weeks? Yeah. Four weeks, maybe. Yeah. Approaching yeah. a month, right? But yeah. Yeah. We're getting close to the end. So. Mm-hmm. How about yeah. you? How are you doing? I am doing okay. Uh, I just had a lovely visit with my sister who was coming through town. And my nephew was was nice to see them. And tomorrow we are doing a day trip to Philadelphia to hit the Franklin Institute while the Disney 100 exhibit is there. Nice. Yeah. Franklin Institute's been on my list for a long time. I fondly remember a trip to Philadelphia when I was a kid and going to that museum where there's a huge walk through human heart. It's still Ooh. there. I walked through it when I was little and now my kids will get to do it. And Which human did they get it from? It must have been a giant of some kind, I would assume, right? Mm. Yeah. Probably giants need to have different, like I, I imagine it wouldn't just be like a scaled up human heart, right? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. But there's there's a like some there's like a an exhibit about the hundredth anniversary anniversary of the Walt Disney Company that is, I think, going to move along to some other city, maybe some other continent. It's been at the Franklin Institute for a few months, and we figured we'd get over there while it's still there. Nice. Yeah. But anyway, that is not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about Jeopardy. So Monday, July seventeenth, twenty twenty three. We have the contestants, Leanne Cromer, a librarian from Catonsville, Maryland. Jerry Powers, a retired elementary teacher originally from Fanwood, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And Daniel Moore, a contract compliance analyst from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose one-day cash winnings total $25,000. And the Jeopardy round categories are Tom Swift Tales, World Royalty, Six Letter Words, Fish People, State Flags, and What's the Name of That TV Show? Um, 
Leanne Cromer is one of our Patreon supporters. So, hey, hey, Leanne, congratulations. You made it. You're on Jeopardy. And I think Leanne left us a comment on one of our recent sets of quiz questions or episodes. And I think was connecting something to her game. It may have been the Tom Swift Tales category. That may have been it. Yeah, I think it may have been that one. Yeah. So we talked about Tom Swift a while back when I was talking about children's book mega series of which the Tom Swift stories, novels, whatever were one. I briefly covered those in that deep dive, but like I learned, I learned new stuff about kind of what was in those from this category. I thought it was a fun category. Mm-hmm. I thought yeah. it was too. Uh, made it more like, I remember us talking about it, but these, these clues were like, Oh, okay. I kind of get the gist of this. Yeah. Now. So, mm-hmm. Fish people was not as I wanted it to be about people who were part human, part fish. It was just Mm -hmm. about people who had fish like names and they seemed to skip the low hanging fruit of salmon P chase. Yes. Which I thought I was, I was sure he was going to be in this category. Yeah. Which I don't know how I feel. You know, it's like on the one hand, it's good to get variety and ask about other things. But on the other hand, if I were on that stage, I would be like, this is my one shot, and I know you're going to ask about Sam and P. Chase. Mm-hmm. And then you didn't. Yeah. I am rereading the question at the $200 level, and I'm realizing that I heard it wrong when it, when it was on Jeopardy. <laughs> A 19th century man named Preserved Fish was an early broker for what became NYSE for I think short. it was I think it, I think it's not pronounced preserved. I think it's pronounced like preserved or something like preserved. that. Preserved. Yeah. The way that Ken pronounced it, I remember specifically he pronounced it differently. Who I, I mean we get you know we get some weird names sometimes in like our generation and you know the hippie generation had some names that were kind of out there but like you name your kid preserved fish. <laughs> like <laughs> To me, that's like, this is kid number 14. I have given up trying. I'm just going to pick the first thing I see. And oh, look, <laughs> we've got some lutefisk on the shelf. So that's your name, my son. Yeah. So, okay. I just I just Googled Mr. Preserved, pre- preserved Fish. Mm. And there, there are n- n- records of at least eight. Or 10, no, at least 10 men in the fish family had the traditional Quaker men, traditional Quaker <sighs> name, preserved. So this is like, I mean, Quakers are a little different from like the Puritans, right? right? Yeah. Like, like, like they were like the, the Puritans would have considered the, did consider the Quakers heretics or would mm-hmm. have, were there Quakers and Puritans at the exact same time? I can't remember. Anyway, like Quakerism is, is quite different from you know, the yeah. the pilgrims and, you know, the, the Puritans and, and those people, but it's that same kind of early American Christianity, like, you know, naming your children, like prudence and like love good. It's like that kind right. of, yeah, that kind of thing. It's like naming them after, after I, like <laughs> virtues and theological concepts. So this is like preserved in a state of grace or preserved from sin, which, but, which makes more sense. But, but your still, last name is Fish. Yeah, maybe so just don't, don't do, do that. that. <laughs> yeah, there are others you can choose. That's not the only one. Charity Fish, you know. I, Constance well, Fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
righteous fish. Now that's <laughs> that would be cool, right? Yeah. I I I either misheard or maybe mis misread. I don't know. I'm mm. I thought that we got through this clue without finding out the man's name. Oh yeah. Uh, I thought he was named after preserved fish. And I'm like named but like but but what? Like but which preserved fish was his yeah, name? Yeah, like sardine or <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Lutefisk, as you mentioned. Yeah. Like, yeah. Gross. Have I ever had lutefisk? I don't know if I have. I feel um, like you'd remember it's an experience. Yeah. In an olfactory sense, as well as <laughs> others. Yeah. Changing the subject, the $400 level of six-letter words you just asked about a couple weeks ago. I did, yes. In the title of a John le Carre novel, these two occupations precede Soldier Spy. Daniel got it. That's Tinker Taylor. Yes, indeed. I enjoyed that movie. Mm, I have not seen was that, that movie. Gary Oldman? I think I so. I don't remember. Yeah, I th- How I is it, it that I haven't seen the movie, but I'm like, yeah, Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. Because you know trivia? Yeah, I know trivia, <laughs> even though I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. Tough miss for Jerry at the $400 level of what's the name of that TV show? Mrs. Ms. Weissman is the maiden name of the title character of this show that ran for five seasons on Amazon Prime. He tried what's the amazing Mrs. He said Mysel. That was not correct. Leanne got the rebound with the marvelous Mrs. I think she also pronounced it Mysel. Maisel is yeah. is how it is, you know. But if you haven't seen it, if you haven't heard it pronounced and you've just seen it written, Mysel is, you know, a reasonable guess of how to pronounce that. But so Leanne got it correct. Daily double number one is down at the bottom of six letter words, the thousand dollar level, pick number thirteen. Daniel uncovers it. Uh, he is at thirty four hundred. Jerry's at 1600, Leanne's at 600, he wagers 1200, gets a clue this poetic name for the land of Robert Burns is in the name of a Canadian province. He has no guess. He guesses what is what, and it is Scotia. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Daniel's at 4600, Jerry is at 1600, and Leanne is at 2000. You get the double Jeopardy categories, the National Recording Registry, Double Talk, Who's That Poet?, I'll be there with bells on. Sorry, B was in quotation marks. And then Oppenheimer, Mm -hmm. uh, a category read by Emily Blunt and Matt Damon. Mm -hmm. Matt Damon. And, you know, obviously recorded before the SAG strike. It had to be recorded before. I don't think Matt Damon and... Emily Blount would have recorded it. Yeah, no, they can't. Like, they're like Matt Damon is like very visibly on the picket line. Yeah, I've seen like stuff from him mm-hmm. in, related to the SAG strike. So he, they would have recorded that before the strike started. And then also this episode, if that's what you were getting at, was also recorded yes. before the strike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two is in that category. It's the very first pick. At the $1,200 level, Jerry finds it. He's at $1,600 as, well, you know, everybody's right where we left them. Kyle mentioned the scores a minute ago. He wagers just 1000 although it's a $1,200 clue, so a little less than the true value. And he gets the clue. Oppenheimer wasn't sure why he chose this name for a nuclear test site, but he did recall thinking of John Donne's poems of death and resurrection, including the sonnet that begins, Batter My Heart, Three-Personed God. And he doesn't really have any idea. It is the Trinity test site, which was news to me. I don't know. Th- I'm, I'm, I'll go see the movie soon. Then I'll maybe maybe firm up my knowledge of this this part of history. I know I know a little bit, but a lot of the a lot of the details I don't have. 
Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was like, I'm going to make a note of that for future quizzes. I'm going to. I thought the National Recording Registry category was was interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm just not that familiar with the National Recording Registry. And, you know, it's interesting to kind of hear some of the range of like what the what the professionals there have deemed notable. I got to think, especially in the digital age, like we can store everything. Yeah, you know? we can. But I think I think they try to be, you know, somewhat, <laughs> yeah, selective. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I mean, yeah, they yeah. I, I'm sure they don't put a copy of literally every recording. Yeah. Like our podcast is not going in the National right. Recording Registry. Mm-hmm. It's a list of sound recordings that are culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and or reform inform or reflect the life in the United States. Mm-hmm. They, as of 2023, a total of 625 recordings have been preserved in the registry. And they are currently adding 25 per year. Anyway, oh, it's really not terribly. Yeah, many. so it's so That's it's really it's, it's selective. It's quite selective, but you know, all I want for Christmas is you. The first the first video game theme, which Leanne knew was from Super Mario Brothers. Well, it's the first one to join the registry. The, oh, sorry, there the, were sorry. Yeah, sorry. There yes, were video the, game themes before. Yes, there there certainly were. Sorry, I misspoke there. But yeah, the first video game theme to join the registry. The first reggaeton recording in the registry is Gasolina, a 2004 hit by this Puerto Rican rapper. That's 19 years ago. Good oh. lord. Anyway, Daniel knew that was Daddy Yankee. Uh, good, uh, call, good, good yes. pull, Daniel. Yeah, <laughs> Way to remember good job. That. Good job. That's mm, that's. Uh, Historical significance. I, I'm feeling my own mortality right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very culturally relevant uh-huh. at that time. Yeah. Daily double number three is in I'll be there at the $2,000 level. Pick number nine. Leanne gets it. She's at 4400 Daniel's at 600 And uh, Jerry's at 3400 She wagered 2200 Got the clue. Though the majority of this country's population is Hutu, the Tutsi minority has historically held power there. And she remembered that it's a B country, but she wasn't able to pull Burundi. She guessed what is Botswana. But like Hutu and Tutsi should point you, of course, toward Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And if you go for the B country that's right next to it, that's Burundi. Yeah. As, as as previously noted, I have a hard time keeping maps in my head, so I think I would likely have struggled with this one also. Hmm. I, meanwhile, forgot the category and was like, Rwanda, easy. Yeah, right? Yeah, my, <laughs> my brain was like, Rwanda. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, contestants aren't too, too far apart. Daniel's at 9,800, Jerry at 7,400. Leanne is still in the mix with 4,200. The final Jeopardy category is government officials. And the clue is, in 1867, he wrote to General Rousseau, on arriving at Sitka, you will receive from the Russian commissioner the formal transfer. Leanne, I think, couldn't couldn't figure out kind of what, like, where we were going with this. And guess yeah. who is Napoleon? With a $602 wager, that drops her down to $35.98. Jerry got it. This is, we're talking about Alaska. So who is Seward? And he's wagered 2401, putting him at 9801. But Daniel got it as well, who was Seward, and a $5,000 wager, which gives him 14800 and the win. Yep. So that puts us into Tuesday. 
And we have the contestants Chelsea Watt, a communications manager from New Westminster, British Columbia, Canada. David Betterman, an attorney from Los Angeles, California, and Daniel Moore, a contract compliance analyst from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose two-day cash winnings is $39,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the Songs of Max Martin, an abbreviated category, college tuition then and now, prefixes and suffixes, stars on the nation's flag, and shark. I've been wanting to see Anne Juliet. Heard good things about it, and the clips were fun to watch. The two hundred dollar level there got a got a, a fun reaction from from the contestants. It was Anne Juliet imagines the Shakespeare story had the heroine lived, and here she is performing this song, Britney Spears' first hit. You know they played the video clue, and then Daniel got it. It's baby one more time. In the clip, it was sung in like more of a like ballad style i guess right like yeah a little bit it was a little bit a little bit softer a little less poppy yeah not a lot less poppy it was still pretty poppy but yeah i don't know if his wow was about like the stylistic change from you know britney spears to the broadway version or Um, just to the fact that he got a britney spears question yep could could be either i like the abbreviations that were that were brought up it was i i don't know i don't understand Exactly why, but the $200 clue had the abbreviation lowercase. Oh, yeah. Like specifically lowercase. BP Mm -hmm. for water, it's 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Chelsea got it right. That's boiling point. Was that to avoid confusion with the possible like company BP? Yeah, like I didn't. Is capital BP a different thing near? Yeah, it threw me off. Yeah, I wonder. Huh. That was weird. I noticed that too. Yes, the BP logo is also lowercase, so I don't think it's to differentiate. Yeah, I wonder. I mm, yeah. Mm, wonder if it was just a typographical error. Yeah, probably not. Mm, no, I don't. I mean, I I doubt it. I, yeah, I wonder what's they, up with that. Yeah, mm. they don't really make those. Yeah, daily double number one is in an abbreviated category at the eight hundred dollar level. It's pick number thirteen. David finds it. He's at 2,000 with Daniel at 4,000 and Chelsea at 2,400. And he makes it a true daily double looking to tie for the lead. He gets the clue F-A-A-N-G coined in 2017 by Jim Cramer to denote five top tech companies at the time. And he gets all five of them. I thought this was tricky. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. That's That's a lot to have to yeah yeah but he does it so he doubles up and at the end of the jeopardy round daniel's at 4600 david has made it up to 8600 and chelsea Mm -hmm. is at 3800 and the double jeopardy categories are american history author's first major works african films three word responses world of first names and four letters ends in y i like those four letter ends in y they were they were different like the 1200 the yeah. word for this type of small flat bottom vessel with high sides and a sharp prow can also refer to a variety of fish. Chelsea got it. That's a dory. To see mm-hmm. or predict the future by gazing at a crystal ball. That's to scry. The ancient scholar who wrote a 142 volume history of Rome that includes accounts of the battles against Hannibal. That's Livy. I don't think I've ever mm-hmm. heard of Livy. Oh, yeah. That one. Th- I don't know why I've heard of Livy, but. 
that one maybe i don't know maybe maybe, maybe, maybe 142 church volume history that, stuff maybe, yeah it could be could yeah he was living like right around yeah 59 bc to 17 mm-hmm. ad or ce whichever naming convention you're going with yeah so may- maybe maybe like religious history stuff you know sure. i mean I, I think he wasn't covering that but like as a as a you know a uh prolific historian writing at that time i bet that you know he's been referenced at some point and and that's how i how i knew his name i don't know but that was a was a good category daily double number two is in world of first names at the 1200 level uh pick number 21 chelsea finds it. she's at 8600 daniel's at 12200 and david's at 16600 this is a Good high scoring game. She wagers 2000, gets a name, take a first name meaning gift of God, change the TH to an F, and you have this Russian name that means the same. She has no idea, but that is Theodore from mm-hmm. Theodore. Yes. And Daily Double number three is in Author's First Major Works at the $1,600 level, pick number 23. Chelsea finds this one as well. At this point, she's at 7,400 with Daniel at 12,200 and David at 16,600. And she wagers 2,000 again. And this time her clue is her 1936 effort, We the Living, is a romantic tragedy set against the perils of Soviet-style totalitarianism. She does not come up with any names she says in a shocking twist. I don't know this one either. (laughs) Ayn Rand is the person who wrote that yeah female author 1936 you know perils of soviet anti-soviet i guessed that but i hadn't heard the title of this work before oh me neither but yeah seemed like the only one that made sense and we'll never read it because it's probably bad yeah uh, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Daniel is at fourteen thousand two hundred, David's at seventeen thousand eight hundred, and Chelsea's at fifty eight hundred. So she could maybe do mm-hmm. something. Final jeopardy category is man made objects. The clue is around since nineteen ninety eight, it's now roughly the length of a football field and travels at about five miles per second. And they all got it. With what is the International Space Station? Chelsea wagered five thousand, goes up to ten thousand eight hundred. Daniel wagered everything. And went up to 28,400. And David wagered a cover bet of 10,601. So he wins by just a dollar. Mm-hmm. By only a dollar. Shocking. So close. So close. Um, oh, man. The narrowest of margins. Mm-hmm. Because he did some math. And on Wednesday, the contestants are Liz Cotrafello, a fourth grade teacher from Broomall, Pennsylvania. Sean Weatherston, a physical therapist from Nampa, Idaho, and David Betterman, an attorney from Los Angeles, California, whose one-day cash winnings total 28,401. And the Jeopardy round categories are painter selfies, same two letters, different place. They will give a postal abbreviation and a country's internet code that are the same two letters. And you have to come up with the state and the country. Fashion old and new, Julia and Julia, five about four, and add an E at the end. How'd you do with the E at the end wordplay? I did great. This is exactly the kind of wordplay that I'm good at. Nice. Yes. As opposed to that visual, like, brain teaser thing last week, which... Nonsense. uh, mm. How dare they? That's not... 
It's not word games. It's something else. Poppycock. <laughs> yeah. The thousand dollar level prudish and optimal or top notch. I liked that one. It was prim and prime. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know this tidbit at the $600 level of Julia and Julia early in her 30 plus years voicing this character. Julie Kavner had it in her contract that she'd never do it live and spoil the illusion. And Ooh. David got that one. It's Marge Simpson. Interesting. So I did wonder, that, did that change eventually? Does she do it live? Has she done it? I don't know. I don't know. Cause I, yeah. I can, I remember like interviews with the cast where they would do the characters voices. Yeah. But I'm, I would assume that means she just never did. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. Be principled. Cool. All right. Daily double number one is in painter's selfies at the $600 level. Uh, David finds it. He's at 2200. This is pick number six. Sean is at 200 and Liz is at zero. He wagers a thousand. Gets a clue. In 1960, his triple selfie graced the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. And uh, he gets to his Andy Warhol, which I think triple selfie kind of points in that direction, but it's Norman Rockwell who is known for the Saturday Evening Post illustrations. Hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, David is at 6,600. Sean is at 2,200. Liz is at 200. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. Titles with punctuation. Geology. Musical menagerie. Get your kicks on Route 66. History and the L you say with double L in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. I learned at the $2,000 level of that last category what peccadillo actually means. It's mm. a minor fault or quirk from the diminutive of a Spanish word for sin. I've heard it used time and again. Well, maybe not time and again, but like every so often. And I'm like, from context, I can tell that that's something. <laughs> but now I, I know where it comes from. So I'll have it more, you know, firmly cemented in my brain. Yeah. The $1,600 level of musical menagerie has been, I don't know, just coming up in, I don't know, my social media a lot recently. This honky-tonk singer duetted with Willie Nelson on the Sudsy country hit, Beer for My Horses. Uh, Sean knew that one. It was Toby Keith, which has been coming up as I've been following like conversations about the controversial Jason Aldean song. Mm. Have you been hearing any of that stuff a little bit i haven't yeah. listened to the song i haven't passed judgment i also don't feel too strongly um, about country music in general yeah i mm, i i listened to the song i saw some of the music video you know i i perceive the subtext that you know that people find concerning mostly i'm just trying to set myself up to get to the key and peel sketch have you seen this Key and Peele sketch? I have not. No. Ah, oh, oh, there is a great Key and Peele sketch where a Keegan Michael Key is a black guy who loves country music and doesn't realize that it has racist, like that the things he's singing have like racist subtext, and his like you know sing- singing these songs for his new neighbor who's trying to point it out to him. Oh. It's a very very funny sketch. Um, <laughs> I believe that. It also is so so topical that when I showed it to somebody, they're like, oh, I didn't know they were making new stuff right now. And you're like, <laughs> you know? like they're not. not they're not. It's not new. I sort of like the I like the the gimmick of titles with punctuation. They gave you the piece of punctuation mm-hmm. and then a mm-hmm. clue about the book. Like exclamation point. 
In this book, he took every present, pop guns, bicycles, roller skates, drums, checkerboards, tricycles, popcorn, and plums. Liz got that. That's how the Grinch stole Christmas with an exclamation point with at the an end. Exclamation point. Yeah. Yeah. Liz also got the $1,600 level, which I thought was another, it was a particularly, you know, I don't know, clever one to include in this category. Comma, it's Susanna Kaysen's memoir of two years at McLean Psychiatric Hospital, starting when she was just 18. Hmm. That's girl interrupted with a yep. comma between girl and interrupted. Daily Double number two is in geology at the $1,600 level. Pick number 14. Liz finds it. She's at 6600 Tied with David. Sean is trailing at 4200 She wagers 1600 the true value of the clue, and she gets the clue. Leapfrog is software scientists use to create 3D models of this kind of relative elevation map, partly from Greek for place. And she gets it correct. It is topographical or topographic. Either would be accepted. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is in the Route 66 category at the $1,200 level. Pick, pick number 21. David finds it. He's at 8200 Sean is at 5800 Liz is up at 11000 He wagers 4000 Wants to take that lead. Gets a clue. Begin your historic road trip at the Begin sign in Chicago, near the corner of Adams Street and this stately avenue. And he gets it correct with what is Michigan Avenue. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, David is in the lead with 15,000, Liz is at 12,200, and Sean is at 7,000. And the final Jeopardy category is Famous Paintings, where we get the clue, a German guidebook to a 1937 World's Fair dismissed it as a hodgepodge of body parts that any four-year-old could have painted. (laughs) Sean gets it correct with what is Guernica, and he's wagered 3,000, which brings him up to 10,000. Liz was heading for what is woman descending a staircase. Mm -hmm. Didn't get it all written, but you know, we know that's not correct. So, you know, that's fine. She wagered 2801. So she drops to 9399. And David got it correct as well with what is Guernica and a 9401 cover bet, which brings him up to 24,401 and gives him his second victory. Yep. He's got a couple of big wins. Dollars. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Tula Ballas, a publishing consultant from New York, New York. Nick Barry, a social studies <laughs> teacher from Baltimore, Maryland, not to be confused with Nick Barry. And <laughs> Nick and David Betterman, an attorney from Los Angeles, California, who has now won $52,802. The Jeopardy round categories a buy the book how to, coffee now, spiders and snakes. Crossword Clues W, You've Got Some Baggage, and John Lennon. I think they got the got the difficulty a little off in coffee now. The $200 level was one story says the inventor of this type of coffee was inspired by a shipment of beans accidentally soaked by seawater. David tried what is cold brew. That's <laughs> a, a solid guess. Solid guess. But decaf is the answer here. Nobody tried it after he missed. I thought I thought that was a more challenging question than, for example, the $800 level. Before this process, coffee beans are green after they're brown and ready to grind. That's roasting. Tula got that one. I don't know. That seemed straightforward to me. Yeah, me too. I don't know the process for decaf, but I do know coffee is roasted and yeah. roasting turns things brown. Yeah, like I thought, mm-hmm. I agree. I felt it was a bit misleveled. Yeah. There was a triple stumper at the $600 level of Crossword clues, mm. Hershey candy bar, or non-specific object. They didn't even try. It's a whatchamacallit. A whatchamacallit. 
it's chewy and chocolatey and crunchy and unchy. I'm not sure I've had a lot of whatchamacallits in my life. I remember the commercial. That's for sure. Were you quoting a commercial that I don't remember? Yeah. Ah. Chewy, chocolatey, crunchy, unchy, whatchamacallit. It has been in my head since I was a child. (laughs) Continuously or intermittently? (laughs) Without stopping, Uh Emily. uh (laughs) Ceaselessly. I am cursed by the whatchamacallit. (laughs) $200 level of You've Got Some Baggage reminded me of something that I heard recently. The second paragraph of this novel mentions a sea chest belonging to the old sailor Billy Bones. Tula tried what is Moby Dick. That's that's a good guess. Treasure Island is what we were going for here. And Mm. I recently saw, I think it was a TikTok, somebody talking about Treasure Island and that you know, Treasure Island inclu- introduces this Long John Silver character who wears, you know, like a three-cornered hat and has the long beard. And I can't remember a peg leg or an eye patch mm-hmm. or a something, right? Like maybe it's a probably button, both, right? And then there's this like reveal, like plot twist: he's a pirate. And before that, you don't know he's a pirate, except that like now everybody does know a- he's a pirate, right? Because of because pirate iconography has been so shaped by the image of Long John Silver, right? That you know, now our stereotypical, you know, our archetype of a pirate is, you know, what that guy from the Robert Louis Stevenson book looks like. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. I, I don't remember who's, you know, who I'm quoting there. It's not an, it's not my original thought, but I, I, mm, that I thought that was really an interesting observation. So yeah, there you go. Daily double number one is in coffee now at the thousand dollar level pick number 12, Tula finds it. She's at 2,800. David is, David is at 1,800. Nick is at zero. She wagers 1,800 and she gets the clue. These two words on a bag of coffee mean its supply chain has been independently certified as meeting sustainability labor standards. And she clearly has the right concept in her head when she says, what is free trade? It's, it's the other one. It's fair trade. Mm-hmm. It's fair trade. Oh, I felt for her. Because I'm pretty sure I've made that same goof. Not in a trivia context, but they they mean pretty different things, but the names right. are so similar. So, that's, yeah. So, she drops down some. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, David is at 4,000. Nick is at 1,400. Tula is at 2,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are BCing you. That's, you know, like BC, like mm-hmm. the abbreviation mm-hmm. before and after. Senators, a vacation from pop culture a deep dive into and the Danube. Now I know deep dive is a term that was around before we started the podcast, which is why we picked it, but it feels directed. It does. Doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. But they so can't we're use back it every game. Yeah. You know, they're sending us messages and the messages they want us to talk about Tarzan, but we can't cause David got the question about Tarzan. Um, they want us to talk about fenugreek. Fenugreek. I don't know that I've ever seen before. Um, like you haven't seen like an image of the plant or. I, I have no idea if I've ever encountered fenugreek in my life. Mm, I, I have encountered it because it is often recommended to nursing mothers as like a helpful like thing to have the like the tea or like use it as an ingredient when you oh. when you're it's a 
what do they call that? A galactolog, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have never been a nursing mother, so I have yeah. never encountered that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People like galactagog, not galactolog. Um, galactagog. Yeah. <laughs> galactagog, the mighty, fearsome warrior of the asteroid belt. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think fenugreek is one of those things that tastes like licorice, so mm. no thank you. No thank you. It tastes similar to maple syrup. It doesn't taste like licorice. I've been avoiding it for no reason. I love maple syrup. Yeah. I love before and after categories. I especially loved the $400 level. The nickname of disease spreader Ms. Mallon gets a big break on Broadway in a show about a nanny for the Banks family. That is Typhoid Mary Poppins. That would be a different (laughs) play. She comes to watch her children and give you all a very dangerous (laughs) and communicable disease. Yeah. Everyone dies at the end. Just it's a, a tragedy. Full of sugar helps the medicine go down, which is good because you're going to need it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like the twelve hundred dollar. A standard piece of lumber, twice as wide as it is thick, is also a day or time meaningful to cannabis users. Nick got it. That's two by four twenty. Nice. Nice. <laughs> I mean, here in Colorado, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daily Double number two is in the Be Seeing You category at the $1,200 level. Pick number five. David finds it. He's at $5,600. Nick is at $3,002. is at $3,200. He wagers $2,000. Gets a clue. Three times was the charm for Carthage, which lost all three of these wars against Rome between 264 and 146 BC. He got it correct with what is the Punic Wars. And Daily Double number three is in the Danube at the $1,600 level. David finds this one also. He's at 13200 at this point with Nick at 9400 and Tula at 2000 He has really, you know, just been picking up a lot in the, in the 10 clues mm-hmm. between here. He wagers 2000 again, and he gets the clue. The Danube's middle course loves gates running from the Hungarian Gates Gorge to Romania's Iron Gate in these mountains. And he knows that those are the Carpathians. Yes. Yeah. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, David has a lead uh, at 14,800. Nick is at 10,200. Tool is at 4,800. The category is 19th century British poems. And the clue is the author of this unfinished epic poem was unsure if he wanted the title character to end in hell or in an unhappy marriage. Mm-hmm. We have talked about this we multiple have. times. And Ken shared my favorite little tidbit about it also. Exactly. That's that's really what brought it back to mind. Tula got it correct with what is Don Juan or, or Juan as it should be. But Ken informed everyone that Byron pronounced it Don Juan. The rhymes the rhyme scheme only works if you pronounce it Juan, which is it, so you're annoying. A professional poet, you can figure it out. <laughs> you can do something different, man. Brit's gonna anglicize though. You had you had you had nothing but time. <laughs> you literally had no worries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Nick wrote what rhyme of the ancient mariner that's incorrect and he wagered only 599 which was enough to stay above tula's double up and david wrote what is leviathan which is as we know is incorrect he made a cover bet of 5601 so he drops down to 9199 that means nick is the winner at 9601 yes indeed 
And on Friday, we have the contestants Taylor Claggett, a marketing director originally from Chesapeake Beach, Maryland, Ben Sasamoto, an environmental consultant from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Nick Berry, a social studies teacher from Baltimore, Maryland, whose one-day cash winnings total $9,601. And the Jeopardy round categories are Happy 75th Birthday Israel, Shakespeare, That Hollow Feeling, The Romains of the Day, Track and Field, and Homophone Connection. Boy, howdy, did they have a rough time with that homophone category. They did. <laughs> they only got yeah. the $600, which was French for street or a French word for a gumbo base, and that's rude. Taylor got it. Yeah. Every, every other one was not not correctly responded. Yeah. Well, I mean, not to, you know, be like somebody who feels like Barry and Barry are really different, <laughs> entirely different words, but like the $400 level thick or car blemishes i couldn't figure it out and they were looking for dense which i'm pretty sure that i say dense differently from dense like the dense dense i do yeah i try yeah i do give a little bit of a t yeah a little t in the car blemishes one it i don't think i would regard that as strictly a homophone right but close enough i guess yeah I thought the $800 level of that was cute. A hidden stash or the dollar bills you might store there. That is cash. C-A-C-H-E or C-A-S-H. Yeah. A cash cash. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought the contestants missed an opportunity in the Shakespeare category. $600 level. Lines that nobody understands include this. A fellow villain calling Cassio a fellow almost damned and a fair wife. Um, Ben got it. That's Iago. And that, Mm -hmm. that was the final Jeopardy response that... Ken won the greatest of all time tournament with. And I, I, I mean, if you're a real fan of the show and you're on the show, you should just have that at the top of your mind at any moment. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Especially well, Ken's, in the Ken's victory with that. Yeah. 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 In the any, middle of your own game. Any brownie points you can get with the host because he controls so much. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know what I mean? <clears throat> so much. Yep. Daily double number one is in the Shakespeare category just below that. It's at the $800 level. Ben finds it. He is at $1,000. Nick is at $800. Taylor's at $400. This is pick number seven. He wages $1,000. Gets a clue. Speaker of the line, I prithee, good Prince Hal, help me to my horse, good king's son. And he gets a correct with his Falstaff. I need to I need to brush up on my Shakespeare. Yeah. I got that one because I did that Henriad, Henriad. Mm-hmm. deep dive a while back. I'm not sure I remember that much about the Henriad, but I, I do remember that, you know, Prince Hal is, I don't know, whichever one of the Henrys. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, if you're supposed to name a character who goes along with him, it's probably going to be Falstaff. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Nick's at 3,000 and Ben and Taylor are tied at 3,800. And the double Jeopardy categories are Explorers, Internally Yours, Old Hollywood Scribes, Motley Clues, Stately denonyms and ends in X with X in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. And they had another homonym. I guess it's homophone, but also it's a homonym, I guess. Pr- pronounced one way, it means intricate. Pronounced another, a series of interconnected apartment buildings. Uh, Taylor guessed what is annex, but Ben got it with complex or complex. Yep. So I guess mm-hmm. it's not really a homophone because he pronounced it differently. Yeah. Tough miss. For 
Nick at the $2,000 level of mm-hmm. internally yours named for a 19th century French pathologist. This area area in quotation marks of the left front part of the brain contains neurons involved in speech function. He tried what is brachia. He, you know, clearly he had some like kind of auditory memory of what this is called right. or something. Broca's area is what they were looking for. So he like, he got, he got the right consonants, but not yes. quite there. Harkening back to my brain areas deep dive yes. from qu- quite a while ago, at least a couple mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Uh, Broca's area and I believe Wernicke's area are the two areas that deal with like processing spoken language, either coming in or going out. Mm-hmm. I believe. It's sort of wild to me. The $800 level of ends with ends in X seen here is self-made billionaire, Sarah Blakely, inventor of this shapewear, Ben knew it at Spanx. I like when male contestants know the responses to feminine coded questions, by the way, you know, cause like women in trivia just need to like learn a lot of, you know, traditionally masculine subjects because it That's it comes up a lot. Trivia tends right. to trivia tends to skew male. So it's it's nice to I see. Mean, yeah. History tends to skew male in, in <laughs> yeah. its telling. I had no idea she was a billionaire though. With a B. With a Good B. Lord. That's so much shapewear. That's so much shapewear. It's so how? I I mean that's a lot of people buying a lot of shapewear and a lot of profit margin. It's mm-hmm. that's it's just sort of mind boggling, right? I was like trying to do the math. I'm like, okay, so like how many people, how much, do, like how many people need to buy one at this price if she's getting this much of it, right? Like it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. I would not have guessed that that had, idea had made her a billion with a B dollars. Yeah. Jeez Louise. Yeah. All right. Daily double number two is in stately demonyms at the $1,600 level. Pick number 12, Nick finds it. He's at 5,000 with Ben at 3,000 and Taylor at 4,600. He makes it a true daily double. Gutsy move, but, you know, solid move. We've got a lot of money left on the board. And he gets the clue, a New Yorker or the last name of Washington Irving's Diedrich. He tried empire. What is empire? But Knickerbocker is the response here, which we talked about back when we were talking about Washington Irving. Yes, we did. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Yep. And daily double number three is in internally yours. Uh, Also at the $1,600 level, much later, pick number 24. Taylor finds this one. He's at 5,800. Nick is at 1,200 and Ben is at 7,000. He wagers 1,200 to try and tie. Gets the clue. It sounds like an old name for Troy, but it's the lowest section of the small intestine where certain vitamin salts are absorbed. And he guesses a part of the GI tract and says, what is duodenum? But that is the ileum Mm -hmm. spelled with an E, I guess, instead Mm -hmm. of the second I. And at the end of the double jeopardy round, Ben has the lead with 9,400. Taylor is at 5,400. Nick is at 1,200. And the final Jeopardy category is numbers old and new. And then the clue is expressed in today's numbers. It's the sum total if you add the seven Roman numerals together. I like that clause expressed in today's numbers because I think without it, it would be defensible to just just write them (laughs) in the correct order. Yes, to just put Roman numerals there. (laughs) M-D-C-L-X-V-I. There you go. (laughs) So we go to Nick first. He tried 
2,166. That is not correct. He's wagered 17 bucks, so he drops down to 1183. Uh, Taylor got it correct with what is one uh, with what 1,666. M is 1,000, D is 500, C is 100, L is 50, X, V, and I, I presume we're. And we probably knew some of those. Yeah, D and L, I think, are the tricky ones that get away from people. X, V, and I, 10, 5, and 1, respectively. He wagered everything. I'm not sure if that's... Well, I guess he has to get it correct to win. So you might as well make a big wager in that situation. So that puts him at 10,800. And then we go to Ben. He forgot the M, the 1,000. He came up with 666. Ooh, spooky. Uh, <laughs> I think that's one of the numbers you're not allowed to wager. But you're allowed to right? guess it, I guess. Yeah, I think but you're I allowed think to you're guess it. Yeah. To, I think you're not supposed to wager it just because it could offend people. And Yeah. But yeah, I mean, what are, what are they going to do? Like prep you before and say, by the way, <laughs> like you can't write some of the possible answers that you might think of. Like, how, right. how would you prep them without giving something Yeah, no, away? you can't. I don't think they can do that. They'd have to just, they'd have to just kill the whole question, right? Right. Yeah, you can't, you can't eliminate one of the likely incorrect answers. Yeah, if the, if the numbers you can't wager thing is new to any listeners, there are, there are certain numbers that you may not wager as a final Jeopardy wager, numbers associated with drug use, neo-Nazi stuff, you know, sat- satanic, you know, whatever, like things right. that have those kinds of negative connotations to some of the viewership are disallowed as as uh, potential final Jeopardy wagers. Anyway, he wagered 3000. And that drops him down to 6400. So Taylor is the winner. And we'll see him again on Monday. Yeah. So that's the week, the penultimate week of, of episodes for season 39. And this is the point in the middle of the episode when we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. If you want to help us with the costs of producing this podcast, our hosting and sound software subscription stuff and whatnot, uh, you can head over there and slide us a few bucks a month. I have not forgotten that I owe you all a story time about finding a loser in the church. I've been... I've been recovering from a horrible cough that is getting, well, it's better today, but it's getting edited out of, of our, of our audio to the best of our ability. So I have, I I haven't gotten to that, but I'll, I'll get it on there. And we put our quiz questions up after we record so that Patreon supporters can see them while we're working on getting the show edited. So we really appreciate those of you who are supporting us there and shout out to, especially to Patreon supporter Leanne Cromer, who is on Jeopardy this week. Yay. Loved seeing you. Loved seeing you there. Yeah. I also want to do a quick shout out to Patreon supporter Ian, who is responding to the quiz questions on the Patreon. Yay. Love that. Other other people can do it. He's also doing very well. So Mm -hmm. that's a good sign. Yes. (laughs) That that is not just inscrutable to everyone but us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So head on over there if you're interested in that. And we... Also like to highlight some causes that matter to us other than us. So you can find some of those in our show notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I do. There were some good topics this week and I don't know what direction you're going in. You've already done 
a philately deep dive. Are you doing coins? I'm not doing coins. Okay. I did. Okay. I thought about that a little bit. What about Kim Philby? You know, I thought that would be. I thought that would be interesting, but I did not head for that one this time. Mm, okay. Let's see. You're not. You wouldn't. You wouldn't talk about Ayn Rand, would you? I would not talk about okay. Ayn Rand. All right. Yeah. What are we talking about? We are going back to the Wednesday game, the five about four category at the thousand dollar level. In 1954, Roger Bannister ran the first under four minute mile on the city's Ifley Road track. It was, was on my list. It was Oxford. Nobody tried it. So of course I'm talking about Oxford. No, I'm, I'm Oxford. talking about Roger Bannister and, oh. the, and the four minute, the four nice. minute mile. Yeah. Which, you know, sports are generally out of my wheelhouse, but I was like, this seems like a story that I can get my mind around and tell, you know, I'm always worried with sports deep dives that I'm going to have to like first teach myself an entire sport. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, this is a, it's a major moment in sports athletic history that, that I'd heard of, but didn't know a whole lot about Thought I thought I'd thought I'd look into it a little bit. So Roger Bannister in the four minute mile. So Sir Roger Gilbert Bannister is best remembered as an athlete who ran the first sub four minute mile. That was just the first part of his life. He also went on to become a neurologist and master of Pembroke College, Oxford. We'll focus mostly on his, you know, his athletic achievements, but I'll touch on his neurology career a little bit as well. Bannister was born on March 23rd, 1929 in Harrow, London to Ralph and Alice Bannister. His father was in the civil service. He had an older sister named Joyce. The family moved to Bath shortly after the outbreak of World War II when Ralph Bannister was relocated there. And Roger continued his education at City of Bath Boys School. Uh, at that school, he discovered a talent for cross-country running, winning the Junior Cross-Country Cup three consecutive times, which led to him being presented with a miniature replica trophy. Mm. In 1944, the family returned to London and Roger went to University College School. He was accepted into St. John's College, Cambridge, but someone, a senior tutor there advised that he wait a year. And after that year, he then applied to Exeter College, Oxford, where he was accepted for a three-year degree in medicine. He started his running career at Oxford in the autumn of 1946 at the age of 17. Prior to that, he had never worn running spikes or, or run on a track. Hmm. Running spikes were, I guess, the, you know, standard gear for that time. Do people still, oh, I didn't teach myself a whole sport. Mm. I don't think, I, I don't know. I'm trying to imagine, but I don't think people wear like cleats anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not actually sure. I don't think I'm. Track and field spikes are a thing that you can buy. I don't know if they're standard. Interesting. Yeah. His training was light, even compared to the standards of the day, which were, you know, lighter than they are now for serious athletes. But he showed a lot of promise. He ran a mile in 1947 in four minutes, 24.6 seconds. At that time, he was training three times a week for half an hour. That's um, it. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. He was selected as an Olympic possible in 1948, but declined because he felt he wasn't ready to, to compete at that level. However, watching the 1948 Olympics inspired him to, you know, commit to training and he intended to train for the 1952 Olympics in Helsinki. In 1940, 
1949, he won several mile races with a time of four minutes, 11 seconds. 1950 found him placing highly, but not winning some notable races and coming in second and third sort of pushed him to up his training and intensify his intensify his training plan. That yielded some benefits. He won a mile race in four minutes, 9.9 seconds on December 30th of 1950. And then in 1951, at the Penn Relays, broke away from the pack with a 56.7 second final lap, finishing in 4 minutes, 8.3 seconds. And then at the 3A's Championships, that's, I think, Amateur Athletic Association. It's It's like a British thing. At White City, on July 14th, he won a mile race in 407.8 with an audience of 47,000 people. His training regimen, working with coach Franz Stompfel, he did an individualized mixture of interval training. So, you know, interval training, probably familiar, I would guess, to most people, right? Interval training is within within your, you know, your workout of the day, you're alternating structured periods of higher intensity and lower intensity, you know, rest or rest or active recovery. He did elements of block periodization. So that's the training thing where you are focusing on some particular aspect of your of your training for a period of, you know, weeks or or months and then yeah and then change your focus in a in another for another block. Hmm. Fell running, fell, fell running is just running hills, up and down hills, and anaerobic elements of training. His training grounds from 1951 to 54, he was training at the track at Paddington Recreation Ground in Maida Vale because he was a medical student at the nearby St. Mary's Hospital. So that was, you know, that was the nearby place that he could train. There is a There are a couple of plaques at that site, one of which notes that Bannister was training there for just an hour a day. So... <laughs> I mean, he also was a medical student, so, you know. He had a lot going on. (laughs) He had a lot going on. He avoided racing after the 1951 season until late in the spring of 1952, intending to save his energy for Helsinki and the Olympics. He ran an 880-yard run on May 28th in 1 minute 53 seconds, followed by a 4 minute 10.6 mile time trial on June 7th. He was satisfied with those results at the three ace championships. He skipped the mile, but won the 880 in 151.5. And then 10 days before the Olympic final, he ran a three quarter mile time trial in 252.9. Yes. Obviously, like when you're doing shorter distances, you can, you know, you You can can go faster. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like you just like, you know, take it and multiply it out, you know, but that, that time gave him confidence that he was, ready for the Olympics, and he considered it to be indicative of his ability to run a four-minute mile. Mm-hmm. It was subsequently announced that there would be semifinals for the Olympic 1500-meter race, which Bannister found discouraging, feeling that it advantaged those who had a more intensive training regimen than his. You know, if you have to do the race twice, it's more challenging, and rest was a big part of his of his training. Hmm. So he finished fifth in the semifinals. So he did qualify for the finals, but felt, quote, blown and unhappy 
that said, he didn't do badly in the finals. It was it was a notable 1500 meter race. The top eight finishers all beat the pre- previous Olympic record. Hmm. Uh, Bannister came in fourth. So he beat the previous Olympic rec- record, but not the winner of this wait- race. Josie Battel of Luxembourg, who won with a, again, this is 1500 meters, so not quite a mile, a time of three minutes, 45.28. After his... I wouldn't call it a failure, you know, but he didn't. Right. I think he was not satisfied with how the how the 1952 Olympics went for him. He spent two months deciding whether to give up running and then set himself the goal to be the first man to run a mile in under four minutes and adjusted his training regimen with a new goal in mind. On May 2, 1953, he made an attempt on the record at Oxford for these four minute mile attempts. He was working with what are called pacemakers, not like the not like the, you know, heart like heart like cardiac medical mm-hmm. device pacemakers like other runners who would run in front of him for a portion of the race to you know to set the pace for him so chris chataway was his pacemaker for this may 2nd 1953 attempt when he ran the mile in 403.6 on june 27th 1953 a mile race was inserted into the program of an athletic meet of the Surrey schools. He used two pacemakers for this one. Australian runner Don McMillan set the pace for the first two and a half laps. And then Chris Brasher, who would be one of the pacers for the record-breaking run, had jogged the race to let Bannister lap him so he could be a fresh pace setter for the remainder of the race. That effort fell just short with with a time of 402.0. And Bannister was sort of relieved. I don't totally understand. Like, I think that because they had, like, inserted this race into this this meet, like, for Bannister to make this attempt, I think. Maybe he, he felt like it was kind of artificial circumstances or something. Hmm. Roger Bannister was not the only person attempting the four-minute mile. Other runners were making attempts and coming close as well. An American runner, Wes Santee, was, ran it in 402.4 on June 5th. And Australian John Landy ran it in 402.0. Bannister had been following Landy's attempts. There were a few more coming in in the 402 point, you know, point whatever in 1954 several times. He was sure that his Australian rival would succeed with each one. But then on April 19th, Landy had, you know, a season closing attempt, got a 402.6. And then Bannister knew that he had to make his attempt soon because he was confident that, you know, if Landy like got through the offseason and made another attempt, he would be the person to break the four minute mile. Hmm. So May 6, 1954 was the date when when that four minute mile happened. Uh, Meet between British three A's and Oxford University at Ifley Road Track in Oxford, as we discussed in the Jeopardy clue, watched by about 3000 spectators. It was a very windy day and Bannister almost canceled to save his efforts for a day with better conditions. Um, But the wind dropped just before he was about to race. So he went ahead. The pace setters from his major 1953 attempts, 53? Yes. Mm-hmm. Chris Christopher Chataway and Chris Brasher paced him for this run. The race was broadcast live by BBC Radio, commentated by 1924 Olympic 100-meter champion Harold Abrahams. Being a dual-meet format, there were seven men entered in the mile. From Oxford University, Alan Gordon, George Dole, and Nigel Miller. Although, Nigel Miller 
arrived intending to be a spectator and then realized that he had been registered to run <laughs> without his knowledge. He tried to borrow a running, you know, ru- running kit <laughs> so that he could take part, but couldn't find, you know, gear that would fit. And so he, he dropped out of the race that he had never intended to run in the first place. So it dropped down to six. And then four British three A's runners, Roger Bannister, his two pacemakers who I mentioned, Brasher and Chataway, and then this other guy, Tom Hulett. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I think I, I, I don't know what he was doing there. I imagine it was a strange day to be him. The race began at 6 p.m. with pacemaker Brasher leading the pack and Roger Bannister right behind him. Brasher led the first lap in 58 seconds, the half mile in 158 with Bannister behind him and Chataway astride behind them. And then Christopher Chataway moved to the front after the second lap and maintained the pace with a 301 split at the final lap led around the next turn and then it was Bannister's turn to break away he with 275 yards to go he sprinted past Chataway ran the last lap in just under 59 seconds the stadium announcer for the race was Norris McWhorter who went on to co-publish and co-edit the Guinness Book of World Records Guinness Book of Records, I think it was called at the time. He drew out his announcement of the results. He included numerous details, really all he could fit in there before announcing the time. And then when he announced a time, he started to read it out. He said three minutes and the crowd went wild, drowning out the Mm -hmm. full announcement of Bannister's time, which was 359.4. Yeah. There is a widespread belief that prior to Roger Roger Bannister's run, people thought it was impossible to run a mile in less than four minutes. That is a myth. It was widely accepted that it was possible, and it was a question of when, not if. Mm-hmm. And although Roger Bannister is the one who broke the record, he is, of the of the record holders, the one who has held it for the least amount of time. So 46 days later, on June 21st, 1954, Bannister's record was broken by his rival, John Landy, in Finland with a time of 3 minutes, 57.9 seconds. Ooh. Yeah. On August 7th at the 1954 British Empire and Commonwealth Games in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Bannister running for England competed against Landy for the first time in a race. I mean, they'd been competing against each other, you know, like in their in hearts. separate places. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was their first time, you know, running on the same track. It was a race billed as the Miracle Mile. These were the only two men in the world to have broken the four minute barrier. And Landy was the world record holder at that point. Landy led for most of the race, had a lead of 10 yards in the third lap but was overtaken on the last bend and Bannister won in three minutes, 58.8 seconds with Landy 0.8 seconds behind him. The crucial moment of the race, both of the, both of the racers say was the moment when Bannister decided to, to try to pass Landy. Landy looked over his left shoulder to gauge Bannister's position and Bannister passed him on the right and Landy never caught up from there. In 1955, Roger Bannister published his memoir, the four minute mile. And then he had retired from athletics at that point. He retired in 1954. I think he continued to be like a recreational runner. He spent the next 40 years practicing medicine in the field of neurology. His major contributions to academic medicine were in the field of autonomic failure. So that's an area of neurology focusing on illnesses characterized by the loss of certain automatic responses of the nervous system. So for example, when you stand up, your heart rate slightly speeds up. That's a that's an automatic nervous system thing, which can go awry. I think that's what, like, if you've heard, like, 
POTS stuff, stuff about POTS, postural mm. orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which can be like a long COVID thing. I'm mm. pretty sure that that's like related to the kind of work that Bannister was doing in neurology. He published more than 80 papers as well as co-editing two neurology textbooks, one of which had multiple editions. He always said he was more proud of his contribution to medicine than his running career. Although, you know, history insists on remembering him for running, understandably so. He married in 1955, married the Swedish artist Moira Elver Jacobson in Basel, Switzerland. And the two went on to have four children. One of their daughters is currently an Anglican priest in a church in Oxford, which, you know, as a, as a minister, I thought that was pretty cool to find out. In 2011, Roger Bannister was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and he died on March 3rd, 2018, at the age of 88 in Oxford. He's buried in Wolvercote Cemetery. He was the inaugural recipient of the Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year Award, then at that time Sportsman of the Year Award, but they've since changed it to Sports Person. He was awarded that honor in 1954. He became the first chairman of the Sports Council, now called Sport England, and was knighted for this service in 1975. He initiated the first testing for use of anabolic steroids in sport. Mm. Yeah. He's the subject of the ESPN film Four Minutes from 2005. It's a it's a dramatization. It has some departures from the fact- factual record, including a fictional character of Bannister's coach. It also mm. had him meeting his wife in the early 1950s. In fact, they met only a f- few months before the Miracle Mile took place. There was a 1988 television miniseries titled The Four Minute Mile about the rivalry between Bannister, John Landy, and Wes Santee. And in 2012, he carried the Olympic flame at the site of his feet in the Oxford University Track Stadium, which is now named after him. So that's a little bit about Roger Bannister and yeah, The Four Minute Mile. I guess, remember remember Oxford? Yeah, yeah. 1954, right? Yep. 1954, okay. uh, Roger, Roger Bannister, maybe Landy would come up. Maybe Landy, yeah. Yeah. The use of pacemakers, I feel like pacemaking. I keep clarifying. I think y'all have got it by now. The use of pacemakers maybe could be a a trivia thing to know. I'm not really sure what else here I should especially highlight as a, a, you know, TLDR point. But, you know, it was fun to learn a little bit about. And someday I will understand sports better than I currently do. Little at a time. Someday. So are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. Great. I don't have a particular theme for this. I just found some questions that I could kind of connect to various things that have come up in the deep dive. Or I think in one case, I like held back a a fact in the deep dive so that I could make it a quiz question. All right. Question one. A banister is the railing that you hold on to while you're going up the stairs or down, I guess. What? Similar sounding word refers to the vertical pieces that connect the railing, the the banister, to the floor. That's a good question. What are those called? Are those balusters? They are balusters. Okay. Yes. Nice job. Yeah, balusters, or also, also known as spindles, but balusters. And then balustrade? with the AD, I think is like the whole kind of railing system. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. All right. So you're at 10 points. Question two. 
In May of 2015, an item associated with Roger Bannister's record-breaking run was sold at auction. This item was manufactured by Nero Lamania. It measures eight centimeters in diameter, and it comes in a pigskin leather case. It was auctioned off for 20,000 British pounds. What was this item? Measures eight centimeters in diameter? Eight centimeters in diameter. Is it the stopwatch? It is. It is one of the stopwatches. Yeah, so it is one of five stopwatches. The one that was used by the chief timekeeper, I think, was ultimately donated, I think, to Oxford. But this one was uh, one of the others used by timekeeper W.J. Burfitt. Question three... I mentioned that Harold Abrahams provided radio commentary for the BBC on Bannister's record-breaking run. Abrahams was himself an athlete, which I which I did mention, who is now best remembered as one of the subjects of what 1981 British historical sports drama. The film won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Original Score. Although the film is set in the 1920s, the soundtrack composed by Vangelis was modern for its time making heavy use of synthesizer. I mean, that's gotta be Chariots of Fire. It is Chariots of Fire. I know very little about Chariots of Fire, truth be told. I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? Chariots of Fire, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's good. Cool. I mean, it's one best picture. I mean, it doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean it's like a good movie, but yeah, it was. It's it's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. So Harold Abrahams, who did the radio commentary for the BBC, was one of the two athletes who are the the subjects of Chariots of Fire. The other one is Eric Little. Yeah. All right. Question four. A statue in Vancouver of Roger Bannister and John Landy commemorates their race there. Landy has quipped that he was turned into a pillar of bronze for turning to look back, just as what biblical figure was turned into a pillar of salt for the same error? That is Lot's wife? That is Lot's wife. We don't know her name other than, you know, Lot's wife. And, you know, seminary nerd fun fact, I am not sure where I encountered this and I had a hard time tracking it down. But I do remember pretty clearly encountering speculation that the origin of the biblical narrative of Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt may have been for the purpose of explaining the presence of you know, a pillar of salt. Like a Just like kind of in the middle of the right, wilderness. Like how did that come to be? Oh, let's connect it to this story. Yeah. Right. Hey, you're at 40 points going into question five. Emily tries to write a sports question. I don't know <laughs> if I put way too much information or not nearly enough or the right amount. Roger we'll Bannister. Yeah, we'll find out. Roger Bannister was the first Sports Illustrated sports person than sportsman of the year. What athlete was the 2022 sports person of the year? He played college basketball for the Davidson Wildcats before going on to be drafted to his current NBA team in 2009. He led that team to their first championship since 1975 in the 2014-2015 season. And in the 2022-2023 season, he became the first player in NBA history to score 4,000 career three-pointers. I don't know basketball all that well. 
I left so, his. I left the team he currently plays for out because I was like, well, even I know that. Yeah, I, I kind of figured. I mean, known for shooting a lot of three pointers, and if the dates are right, I think it's the Warriors. So I, Golden State. Yeah. So I think it's Steph Curry. It is Steph Curry. Okay. Yeah. All right. It sounds like I got the right information in there, and you weren't like, well, duh. Like, come on, yeah. Emily. <laughs> All right. You are at. 50 points and let's just call this the Guinness book of records. Okay. I have no idea where that's going. So I will bet 40. Okay. For 90 points, the stadium announcer for the race, Norris McWhorter went on to co-publish the Guinness book of records. That book has gotten kind of weird There's one record category which Guinness's website says has now become almost synonymous with us. The current record holder in the female division of this category is Diana Armstrong with a combined length of 1,306.58 centimeters. Typing must be very difficult. In what category does she hold this weird record? I mean, I got to think with your clue. That's the... That's... Wait a minute. How long? 1,306.58 centimeters. 1,000 centimeters. Yes. That's 100. That can't. No. Okay. That's 1,000 centimeters. 42 feet, 10.4 inches. Yeah. If you convert it. Yeah. I. 42. I mean, your clue made me think of something, but I can't. Is it length of, like, longest fingernails? It is longest fingernails. How can you even (laughs) exist? Right? Isn't that wild? Your hands for anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, 42 feet, 10.4 centimeters across, you know, across both hands. Still, that's an average of over four feet per fingernail. Her shortest nail her left pinky fingernail is three feet, seven inches long. Yeah. The Guinness book of records, like website, there was a, there was an article about this particular category saying, you know, when we ask people what their memories or associations are, so many people tell the story of, you know, finding a Guinness book of world records and seeing a picture or seeing the record for world's longest fingernails. I mean, it would stick with me. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Anyway, yeah, world's longest fingernails is correct. So you have finished this quiz with 90 points. Congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, it's a weird <laughs> feeling now. Yeah. And I'm picturing that and like how that would feel. Oh, yeah, you can you can see a picture if you go to the Guinness World Records. Um, I don't uh, want to. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully... Our, our listeners are not too unsettled by this idea of 42 <laughs> feet of fingernails, but <laughs> if you are, very sorry. Thank you for listening. As always, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a minute to do that. Our Patreon, once again, is patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are Jeopardy fans, let them know about us. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com.
Yes. And we will be back next week for the ultimate, the final week of the of season 39. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.